The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Middle-income families need help. Uh, we're coming out of COVID-19. We want to keep our economy strong. When you have an infrastructure bill, there's spin-off from that. There's spin-offs in cities and towns all across America. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We need to incentivize the manufacturing of chips in America. I do believe the vaccine is safe and effective. But I think what government's role is is to share the science, share the facts. Share the benefits. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. From deep inside the Beltway, where it's so hot they installed a fan in the debt ceiling. But we drive on with a new push on Capitol Hill to ban lawmakers from using their positions to profit on stocks. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says she is now introducing new legislation to stop conflicted trading And we're going to talk about it in a moment with Kendrick Payne of the Campaign Legal Center, which has filed complaints against at least three lawmakers. And we'll hear as well from Robert Hockett at Cornell Law School. And the panel, Bloomberg's politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis with us for the hour. We turn to conflicts of interest on Capitol Hill, specific to investing. You may remember this was addressed about 10 years ago in something called the Stock Act, which requires lawmakers to disclose their stock trades within 45 days, no exceptions in an effort to keep them from profiting on inside information. Amazing that that didn't exist before 10 years ago. At the time, it was embraced by many, including a representative from New York you may have heard of named Kathy Hochul. Yeah, this is her on the House floor in 2012. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Just a minute ago, we heard our chaplain beseech us to be open to the hearts and minds of the people we represent. That is exactly why today we need to pass the Stock Act to stop inside trading on congressional knowledge. Whatever happened to her? And President Obama, of course, signed the bill into law later that year. It's the notion that the powerful shouldn't get to create one set of rules for themselves and another set of rules for everybody else. And if we expect that to apply to our biggest corporations and to our most successful citizens, it certainly should apply to our elected officials. But it may not have stopped that behavior. The Washington Post, the first to report today, Senator Rand Paul failed to disclose his wife's purchase of stock in Gilead, which, of course, makes a COVID treatment, made that trade after Congress was briefed on the threat of COVID before everyone was aware of the pandemic. The aforementioned Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweets today, it is absolutely wild that members of Congress are still allowed to buy and sell individual stock. It shouldn't be legal, she says. Now that would go quite a few steps beyond the Stock Act. And now the Campaign Legal Center has filed a complaint with congressional ethics offices against three other lawmakers, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, Rep. Pat Fallon of Texas, Rep. Blake Moore of Utah, for violating the Stock Act. And we're joined by... Kedrick Payne, General Counsel and Senior Director of Ethics at the Campaign Legal Center. Kedrick, welcome. Thanks for being with us. These are all Republicans I just mentioned, but is this not a bipartisan problem? 
It is a bipartisan problem, and it also affects both House members and members of the Senate. Everyone uh, is, is involved. So tell me about your complaint and what you're trying to accomplish with these three lawmakers. I assume there could be more. That's right. There uh, probably be, will be more because there looks to be a trend that these lawmakers are finding where they can just wait to disclose a trade at the end of the year uh-huh. instead of following the Stock Act, which requires you to uh, reveal that trade real close to the time when it happens, which is the only time when it's useful for the public to know whether or not there's a conflict. That's the case with those you're complaining about as well. Rand Paul, it's not that they never disclosed, right? It's that they didn't do it in the appropriate period of time. That's right. You have to understand the history of the financial disclosure law. Ever since the 1970s, it's been required that at the end of the year, the assets, including stocks, have to be disclosed. But around 2012, it was confirmed that that is not enough information. You have to know it at the time it happens. And that's the loophole that uh, it looks like Senator Paul is exploiting. Well, it's not even a loophole, really. It's just violating the law by not disclosing it at the time when it happens. Just doing it the way we used to do it without acknowledging the new law. Do you expect to file a complaint against Rand Paul as well? Yes, we actually did file a law, a, a complaint against Senator Paul a few hours ago, huh. and it's because his is the most problematic. The reason why it's a problem with these stock trades is if it looks like it's an intentional violation of the law. His stock trade happened on February 26th. If you recall, that is the time when uh, people did not know much about how COVID would hit the U.S. There were only 15 confirmed cases at the time. He made that trade, and then a few weeks later, when Senator Burr and other senators made similar trades, there was a huge public backlash. He uh, completely escaped that backlash by waiting until now to uh, file that. uh, And this is Gilead Sciences, which makes remdesivir, right? That was one of the the best-known treatments for COVID just a couple of months later. Exactly. So what's the punishment for these lawmakers? What are you trying to get done here with your complaint? Well, the main thing we want is to have the Senate Ethics Committee truly investigate this uh, uh, stock trade. And if it is found to be intentional, that's a criminal uh, uh, violation, and it is uh, subject to fines going up to $65,000 and possible imprisonment. Well, I guess that would be quite a story. But you're going through the ethics offices. You're trying to prompt, essentially, Capitol Hill to police itself to do its job. That's exactly right, because this also has political uh, consequences as well. I mean, even if uh, it's considered that this stock trade was just one stock trade, it wasn't worth millions of dollars, Mm -hmm. the amount of political fallout that he avoided by not uh, disclosing this contribution, this this trade back in March, is enormous. You saw what happened to Senator Burr, where he ended up uh, soon announcing he would not run for re-election, and then Senator Loeffler uh, didn't win uh, her uh, uh, re-election. So... This does have consequences that the senator was able to avoid. Real-world consequences. From the Campaign Legal Center, Kedrick, uh, we thank you for being with us, for helping us understand this. And you just heard news on Bloomberg Sound On. It wasn't just Tuberville, Fallon, and more. They have now added Rand Paul in a fourth complaint today. Let's bring in Robert Hockett. He's a professor at Cornell Law School. Professor, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. What kind of legal trouble could these violations lead to beyond censure? Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Um, so I, I think uh, Kendrick actually uh, 
basically, I think, uh, gave us the lowdown on what the, the, the legal trouble could be, right? I mean, these are potential criminal violations, and they're subject to significant criminal penalties, including, you know, hefty fines and even prison time. So, um, you know, if uh, the Congressional Ethics Office does indeed investigate and finds that these were outright violations, um, then we're talking about serious potential problems for the, uh, the violators. Could there be legal implications outside of, of that system? In other words, could someone sue these lawmakers uh, to potentially do even more? It, it could happen because it's, it's worth noting the, the sort of the overlap, I guess, between the Stock Act on the one hand and the insider trading prohibitions under the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, uh, on the other hand, right? The basic idea in all three cases, that's to say both the 33 and 34 Acts on the one hand and the Stock Act of 2012 on the other hand, um, is a, it's a basic fairness concern, right? The idea is that if you, by dint of a particular position that you have, have privileged access to information that bears upon the value of stocks, mm -hmm. and you trade on that information without disclosing to the broader public that you have that information and sharing it with them as well, then what you're essentially doing is you're putting yourself ahead of just ordinary market participants. Right? You're basically trading on information that isn't properly yours. You're it's inside trading. It's essentially insider trading, precisely. And as you might know, uh, as I'm sure you guys know, actually, um, insider trading law allows both for regulatory and criminal sanctions on the one hand, if public agencies uh, pursue the crimes, but also uh, private uh, uh, rights of action uh, on the part of others. We're spending some time on Bloomberg Sound On with Robert Hackett, professor at Cornell Law School. As I look at this tweet today from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the legislation that she's putting forth would keep members of Congress from buying and selling individual stocks, period. What kind of legal obstacle might that face? Can Congress write whatever rules, self-policing rules it wants, or, or is it more complicated than that? Uh, Congress could could certainly write rules along those lines. I, su I suspect that that wouldn't happen, though. I, I suspect that what Congress would be more likely to do would be to impose upon its own members something pretty much like the SEC's disclose or abstain rule when it comes to insider trading more broadly. Okay. That's to say you would require those Congress members to sort of tell the public, oh, I'm about to sell this stock or I'm about to buy this stock because of this information that I got so that other members of the public uh, could get in on the act as well. You wouldn't be, in other words, privileging yourself relative to other people. My guess is that Congress would be game to do something like that, basically just carry right over into congressional ethics the kind of standard norms that we've come to expect in the insider trading context. Um, it's certainly possible that they could go beyond that and say, well, instead of requiring disclosure or abstention, which is what the insider trading law currently requires, we simply require the abstention, right, um, so that there's not even a disclosure option. You just have to abstain. Um, there wouldn't be anything to prevent Congress from um, adopting internal rules of that kind for their own members. But okay. I don't – again, I, I, I sort of doubt that that would happen. Believe it when um, we see it, right? Well, I'll tell you what, companies like Bloomberg that, that have access to, particularly in the financial news business, they have access to all kinds of, of information mm -hmm. before the rest of the world, uh, also mm -hmm. have personal trading policies. It's to, it's to keep things on the up and up. Uh, exactly. As far as this yeah. goes, on the other hand, to your point, the AOC proposal is certainly beyond that. You can't own individual stocks in, in that world. But I'll tell you, Professor, if Martha Stewart can go to jail, can't Rand Paul? 
He certainly could. Um, again, there's, as you know, I mean, there have been a number of cases brought, um, a, num- a number of investigations launched and even prosecutions commenced in the last few years um, about precisely this kind of thing, right? Particular members of Congress um, who have been implicated in just outright insider trading scandals, including one Republican, I think he was out of California back in, I think, was it was it the summer of 2018? Uh, I'm I'm sorry we don't have time to go back that far, Robert, uh, but I appreciate your being with us. Professor at Cornell Law School, I think we get where we're going here. And coming up, we want to hear from the panel on this. Conflict trading with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno, and Rick Davis. They're next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Should members of Congress be allowed to own stocks at all, or should they simply be compelled to follow the rules as written? Let's talk about it with the panel now that we have set the table and even made a little bit of news here on complaints from the Campaign Legal Center. They have now added Rand Paul to the list. That's four lawmakers they are issuing complaints over. And we want to bring in the panel on this. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno and Rick Davis are next. I'll ask you both that question very simply. Jeannie, starting with you, should should members be allowed to own stocks like grown-ups or should they be banned because they can't handle the laws as written? Well, I, I thought it was so fascinating listening to Kendrick Payne and the professor talk about this issue. And, you know, and also stunning that Rand Paul, somebody who has come out so vehemently in terms of being against mask mandates and stopping the spread of coronavirus being kicked off YouTube, had on February 26th, purchase, or his wife had purchased these stocks and had not disclosed this. So that yeah. in and of itself is a fascinating story. It's a problem. Yeah, it's a big problem. And we know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others have introduced legislation as far back as March 2020 on banning trades, um, banning members of Congress from trading stocks. I think that may not be possible. And I think the professor is right. We're probably looking more at a disclosure, um, a tightening up of the disclosures versus an all out ban. And there's many reasons for that. Just one I can offer you is that when you do the kind of ban that they are talking about, you do run the risk that you diminish the type of people who can run for Congress. It sounds silly, but you then say if somebody is a billionaire, trillionaire, and they can afford not to trade, they can run and serve. But somebody Mm -hmm. who them and their families have to make money on this stuff can't do it. So there's implications that we don't like to think about, but certainly tightening up the disclosures would be a good first step. I'm sure you remember this uh, whole debate and this law uh, being signed uh, in 2012. Rick, should there be a purity test or, or just find ways to inspire lawmakers to do the right thing, follow the law? Well, I think following the law would be good, but this law, the Stock Act, has no teeth. Uh, It wasn't long ago that uh, Kelly Leffler and three other senators walked out of a closed-door briefing just prior to the outbreak of coronavirus and immediately started trading on that. Um, uh, DOJ, SEC, the Senate Ethics Committee all filed against them. And what was the outcome? They all dropped the charges. They all dropped the investigation against four senators who clearly traded on inside information that they learned about the coronavirus. So until you get a bill that actually is going to do something, uh, you're not going to see much uh, change. And I would say this is not a Congress that we've seen much desire to reform their their practices. You know, they've held on to just about every uh, special gift they get. And this is one of them. They can trade 
uh, without uh, fear that they have inside information that they've gleaned from Congress. So what should they do? What Should this AOC bill become law? Well, I mean, you're requiring the, the people who are being policed to actually make the law. And so that never really turns out very good. I've been very yeah. involved in the past on campaign finance reform and the things that we did with John McCain. And, and it, it didn't take long for the system to even undermine uh, those reforms. I think the Department of Justice, the SEC, these guys have to actually start to uh, act as if there are issues in Congress related to the improper trading of, 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 of stocks. So what should this debate look like here, Jeannie? Is, is Rick onto something here that, that the Congress should not be policing itself? Should the SEC, for instance, get involved? The SEC can get involved, but we have to remember one of the primary roles that Congress plays that's unique in some respects to our Congress is they do police themselves, not criminally, obviously, but they police their membership. And as we've seen many times, they can hold their members accountable. They can even kick their members out. And I don't think we should get rid of that. That policing needs to go on. It's critically important. But you don't have to do one or the other. You can do both. The SEC can get involved. They can certainly be be held criminally responsible for violating criminal laws. But I do think it starts in the ethics area and Congress should do it. And let's not forget, this is not just about COVID. It wasn't that long ago we heard about Nancy Pelosi's husband. Five million trading options on Google's parent alphabet. Mm -hmm. That is a big deal. And so this is not one party or the other, and it's not just COVID related. This is a huge, huge issue. And I don't think most Americans realize how deep it goes. And Mm -hmm. so I'm not surprised that Rand Paul escaped this kind of scrutiny when this occurred in February, and it's just coming out now. I'm glad you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, because when you go back to 2012, there was another trade. It was uh, it was Visa and they were IPO shares. 60 Minutes did an investigation into this, and she became very upset when she was asked during a briefing about it and denied any wrongdoing. But, Rick, the idea here is this goes all the way to the top, goes all the way to the top. And ultimately, right now, the the arbiter of of these ethics tend to be the voters. Uh, I don't doubt that uh, Senator Leffler was uh, uh, was was downgraded in her own state reelection effort by the fact that she had to battle these 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 charges of self dealing. And so ultimately, I think that that, that that's where you go. Uh, this whole thing just reminds me a little bit of a scene in Casablanca. Oh, no. You know, where Captain Renault walks into the casino. So I'm shocked to find out there's gambling going on. <laughs> Just as a croupier hands him his winnings. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, like, that's exactly what we have in the United States Congress. Spoken like a man who spent some time there. Rick Davis, Jeannie, and Rick will be back in a bit. As we focus on the recovery coming up, President Biden's economic agenda. After we check traffic and the market, stay here. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. 
Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Headline on the terminal, President Biden's economic agenda confronts tripwires everywhere in Congress. Sure, the infrastructure bill passed the Senate, but now many think the hard part is just beginning, and we'll talk about it next with Bloomberg's Billy House. And thank you for being with us on this little Friday, known to most as Thursday. Spent a lot of time talking about infrastructure. I'd say this past week, but how about this past year? It's been a long road. And so roadblock coverage, when the United States Senate passes a bipartisan infrastructure deal, we stay up all night the day after, talk about reconciliation. But it's not over. The central pieces of President Biden's $4.1 trillion economic agenda, as I read on the terminal now, are now moving through Congress on a precarious two-track path. We've talked about that, but further complicated by a September showdown over the debt ceiling. Billy House shares the byline with Stephen Dennis, and Billy's with us right now. It's good to have you, Billy. The debt ceiling is just one item that could slow things down or change the plans that Joe Biden has. As you write, funding deadline complicates the path after break. How difficult is this going to be as a backdrop for negotiating infrastructure? Well, there's two things. Keeping government open past September 30th because uh, annual spending bills aren't completed and the debt ceiling are in themselves issues that have stymied Congress in the past. Now you throw both of those in there in September and early October and with the infrastructure battles and you see something here that uh, um, is, is almost unprecedented. Yeah. We all remember the whole fiscal cliff. We remember the sequester. Is we that do. good background to have when we talk about this? Are we heading for one of those? Well, we're still in a sequester. <laughs> you, well, true enough. But how about another fiscal still cliff? Aren't open. True enough. But how yeah. about another fiscal cliff, Billy? There is one. There's very. Uh, there's a very real chance of one because uh, the, the battles over the infrastructure are only causing festering wounds that could spill over into other financial things. Uh, and, and certainly a battle over the nation's debt and whether it can continue to borrow is going to play a big role in whether and how much we continue to spend on agencies. So Republicans feel that they are in a good position to, to say, uh, hey, you know, $4.1 trillion when you're in debt is not a very good figure. And, and then Democrats, of course, are digging in and saying, well, we got to do this now. we got to do this for the country and we're after coming out of the pandemic. As far as uh, the debt ceiling goes, a lot of people thought that it would end up in the reconciliation plan. Were you surprised that it did not? And, and should we assume then that Chuck Schumer knows how this ends, that he will paint Mitch McConnell into a corner and force Republicans to vote? I think that's his hope. Uh, 
but uh, Mitch McConnell, of course, uh, thinks that this puts it all on the backs of Democrats and that they have to, uh, to get through that reconciliation process you mentioned, have to be unified and, and, and not, can't lose one vote. So it would be an all-democratic thing. Now, uh, so Schumer opted not to do that. And the question is, of course, uh, somebody's got to bite the bullet here or, and, and lead to some cooperation to get this thing done. So that's one piece of this. Of course, reconciliation is another. Nancy Pelosi says she won't touch infrastructure until reconciliation shows up. There's something called, gosh, this is different, committee work in your piece on the terminal. We almost <laughs> forgot what committees were in the middle of all this. How's that going to go? Well, let's first of all, the uh, the budget framework the Senate passed this week hasn't even made it over to the House yet, and they're going to come in for a special session on August twenty third and fourth just to pass that shell. Yeah. But it, you know, when with the talk of hoping to get this done by early fall, the truth is the committees uh, aren't required to actually fill in the blanks on that to put in actual programs and details till September fifteenth, and. Uh, that's not going to uh, go as smoothly as perhaps it's written down on paper. I mean, the different elements of both parties want different things. So what's going to happen? That'll probably be strung out, uh, the, the bill writing process. Uh, and the, the fight within Pelosi's own caucus will be, well, we're dragging out this bill writing and, and uh, boat collecting on this other bill. We have this 550 billion dollar roads and transportation bill already ready to go and ready for us to vote on and we get money out the door so pressure will build on nancy pelosi to actually put that bill on the floor even if progressives don't want her to till they get their way with the other bill yeah and of course progressives exactly have been a real problem for nancy pelosi and for chuck schumer they don't like the way the bipartisan bill came together and they're more than happy to, to essentially hold that hostage until things come together with reconciliation. There are also two names you point out in your column, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. They don't like the price tag. They don't like the way it's paid for. So it sounds like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi have problems in common, Billy. They do. And uh, to hear Chuck Schumer yesterday at a news conference, you, yeah, we're all going to iron this out. This is fine. Yeah. But you know, and I know, and anybody who's watched Congress for a while knows that when it's big, when it's important, when it needs to get done, it don't get done till Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve. Well, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but okay. the early <laughs> fall uh, deadline they're putting for themselves, I think, is uh, fantasy. When the House comes back, uh, and and what is it, August twenty third, right? Uh, right? What will we see take place? Days. Yeah, what will we see take place in those days? What's supposed to happen is the routine passage of the budget framework or shell that Democrats have sent over on that larger, massive piece right. that progressives and others want. Uh, that and they don't start filling in the blanks then until September when everybody's back. Exactly right. So I guess okay. let's put a bow on this, Billy. What does this mean for the agenda? If you're Joe Biden in Wilmington looking down at D.C. this weekend, wondering if any of this is going to work, you've got infrastructure, you've got a potential for inflation, you've got the debt ceiling, there's this thing called COVID, and you're at the mercy of Congress. How likely is it that his agenda gets through? Well, he knows it's got to get through, and it's got to get through this year because he could lose in, in 2022. Uh the Democratic majority in both houses. So what he's got to do is get involved personally. He's got to get one-on-one -on -one with lawmakers. He's got to turn some of these people around and get them on board together and get something through. And we'll wait and see if he has the ability or, or contacts to do that.
Find the story on the terminal. Biden economic agenda confronts tripwires everywhere in Congress. Great work, Billy House. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We'll bring the panel back next. Stay right here. Traffic and the markets straight ahead. And more on Bloomberg Sound On. Rick and Jeannie are coming in. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. With breaking news today on Afghanistan, the withdrawal and the takeover by the Taliban, as well on COVID. We're going to hit both with the panel as we bring in Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan, Zeno and Rick Davis spending every hour with us here on Bloomberg Sound On. As far as... Afghanistan is concerned. That's where we start. The headline, U.S. to start embassy evacuation in Kabul. Indeed, news today that the U.S. is deploying 3,000 troops to help evacuate the embassy. Ned Price, a spokesperson for the State Department. We are always evaluating uh, the situation on the ground. We are planning for all contingencies. Uh, this was a contingency, in fact, that we had planned for. The embassy is set to be evacuated as the Taliban makes rapid gains. This is a temporary assignment, temporary mission for the troops to help with the evacuation. But it's a screaming headline. Rick Davis, we've talked about Afghanistan quite a bit. This is the kind of stuff you saw coming, isn't it? Sure. We've been talking about this since the uh, president announced his policy of withdrawal. Uh, there was no contingency. There was no peace plan, peace plan in place with the Taliban. And it was pretty predictable what would happen. Taliban exerts their their advantage uh, and they've they've gained enormous ground and are just outside of the capital, Kabul. And now we're running out of the embassy like we did in Vietnam under the failed wars uh, during that era. And there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. But at the end of the day, the people of of Afghanistan are going to look back and, you know, think, well, you know, uh, where was the U.S. when we needed them? And uh, the transition, there is no transition. It's After it's literally years. a full retreat. Jeannie, President Biden rejected that comparison to the evacuation of Vietnam, the images of people on a rooftop trying to get the last helicopter out. Is that fair? Uh, you know, he may reject it and he, I'm certain, wants to reject it. But the fact is, you look at the headlines across the world today. You have the United States bringing in Marines, as you've just been talking about, to evacuate Americans. You have the United States asking the Taliban to spare us and our embassy in the fight over Kabul, and you didn't see this coming when you mounted this withdrawal. I mean, it is stunning that the United States is in this position, and I think the president has got to be very, very clear with himself and the American public that the decision he made to withdraw the troops, we all saw this coming. He can't have been caught flat-footed on this, and we shouldn't be in this position. I think he's going to have a lot of explaining to do. And by the way, the pictures that are coming out of there, they are really, really telling, and the comparison is one he's not going to be able to avoid. And I think it's going to get worse as these last cities begin to fall. The optics here are tough, Rick, an official with the Pentagon telling the Washington Post today that Kabul could fall within 90 days. That actually, well, 90 days. People don't have very long memories. Will the last 20 years matter when that's splashed across TV screens and the Internet in a couple of months from now? No. I mean, when you see the atrocities, uh, if it's like what uh, happened the last time the Taliban ran that country, 
uh, and the, uh, uh, the the putting women into slavery and 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 the religious courts that uh, inflict enormous pain and suffering on the people. Yeah, uh, uh, people are going to see that image and they're going to wonder. Uh, Joe Biden said we spent a trillion dollars in 20 years and uh, trained 300,000 troops, and people are going to scratch their head and think, what in the world was the result of all that? And now uh, I would suspect that that only in a few months we'll be having a conversation on this program about the the new decision by the administration to try and uh, re-engage in some kind of a security situation in Afghanistan. And history repeats itself again. As we spend time with the panel, we have breaking news on COVID. Uh, The Supreme Court, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, refusing to block, Charlie Pellet mentioned this a little while ago, refused to block Indiana University's requirement that all students be vaccinated against COVID for the fall semester unless they have a religious or medical exemption. No explanation as she turned away an emergency request from eight students who said the vaccine mandate violated their constitutional rights. Amy Coney Barrett, how is this going to go over with conservatives, Jeannie? Um, I am not surprised that she pushed back on this. I mean, let's not forget the college itself in putting this in place had allowed, as we know, and you just mentioned for exemptions, they are also allowing students to take classes remotely so they don't have to be immunized if they choose not to. And let's not forget, college is a choice. And the college itself is a public university. It has a right to protect its students, faculty, and staff. And for a conservative, conservative rather, like Amy Coney Barrett, I don't think it's a surprise that she is letting the state and the university in this case make a decision on how to go forward. When they filed this emergency uh, appeal, I think it was several days ago, um, I think I was uh, expecting this to happen, and it did happen. I would never have thought the Supreme Court, run by six conservatives, would step in and force the state and the, the public university to step back yeah. on this. So it's a, big, it's a big win for the university. Yeah, did you feel the same way about that, Rick? Sure. I mean, I, I, I applauded the decision. Uh, I, it shows you that just because Amy Comey Barrett is a uh, conservative and, and took a lot of gas coming into the court, that uh, that she can make a clear and present decision on what's right for the the greater good of the country. I mean, uh, lower court judge Frank Easterbrook had had said, "Hey, uh, these people have ample educational opportunities elsewhere. If they don't like the rules in Indiana University, go someplace else." And I I just applaud the judiciary. We complain a lot about them sometimes, but I think they got this one spot on. Wow. It's going to be precedent setting. I can only assume, Jeannie, because there are a lot of complaints out there like this. There are. And I think this is going to speak, as you said, very broadly across the country as other appeals come through. And and let's not forget, again, just what Rick said. They are not saying you have to go to the University of Indiana. And so we all must be vaccinated. It is a choice to go, just like it's a choice to work where you work. If the institution requires vaccination to work there, you've got to do it or consider other options. And that's the reality of the situation. And I think coming to this on 14th Amendment grounds was going to be a loser, unfortunately, for these students, because there are options to file for exemptions and there are other opportunities for education. And Amy Coney Barrett, this fits right within the conservative mindset. Let the state decide. And she is doing just that. Uh, I'm reminded by uh, Bloomberg producer Matt Shirley that that Barrett was teaching at Notre Dame like two years ago. She knows students. She understands 
the education community. Does that give her more credibility among conservatives, Rick? You know, I don't think she With needs credibility amongst conservatives. I think that uh, you know, her history speaks for itself. Uh, if anything, I think she needs some credibility with uh, progressives because uh, who knows what they thought uh, her decision on this kind of a uh, case would be. And so I think she's distinguished herself on this. But look, I mean, she is she's just the tip of the iceberg. The courts um, uh, were very clear on this all the way up the chain. And um, and I think it's much less about her than it is about the environment we're in. Uh, go get vaccinated and go to school anywhere you want to. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Sheehan Zeno and Rick Davis with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Joe Biden uh, just a short time ago was talking about keeping kids safe with masks in schools and not politicizing this. We'll give you the last word on this, Jeannie. We're talking college in this ruling, but how about the lower grades, particularly young kids, those under 12, no vaccinations. Parents are fighting over this, but this ruling could also apply to lower level grades, correct? Certainly private schools when it comes to younger kids. You know, it could. And I think we have to remember, we don't know her reasoning on this. We know that she decided not to support the students in, in issuing this emergency relief. We don't know her reasoning on that. I think if we did have reasoning, it would help support some of what is going on there. But as you mentioned, and people with young kids know, the debates out there are very, very um, difficult for parents who can't get their kids vac vaccinated and this issue of masks or no masks. And I think that's going to continue. And I think Joe Biden, all governors across the country are dealing with this and it's going to impact all of us as schools start to reopen just now and in the next coming few weeks. Rick and Jeannie with us every day here on Bloomberg Sound On. And I suspect we're going to do this again tomorrow. Thanks to both of you, as always. As we round out the fastest hour in politics. I hear they're onto something in Germany. It's one of the first stories I read this morning on the terminal. Berlin has a different angle on COVID, getting people vaccinated. They're throwing vaccine raves. I read to help revive the dormant club scene. So maybe it's time to steal a move here from the techno capital of the world. <laughs> Enter the jab rave. As Angela Merkel herself says, you have to go to the people, and they are. Just picture yourself at the freewheeling Kit Kat Club, your glow stick dancing to the beats at a party supervised by scientists. This is really happening. Or maybe the club arena, where the focus I read is on administering shots with blaring music and long cues. It's almost like the old days, waiting in line, sweating it out except no drinks are allowed inside. And the bouncer? But he's more worried about vaccination cards than proving your age on an ID. For what it's worth, only two people were turned away on our recent Monday. So how about it? It seems to be working. The jab rave. I'll meet you there. We're maybe back here tomorrow for the fastest hour in politics. We've got one more in us. Bloomberg Sound On. Make sure you're with us for the Friday edition as we look back on the week that was... And a lot of news to cover ahead of the weekend. Apologies to Rick and Jeannie. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.